Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. If you like weird and strange history as much as I do, then I have the podcast for you. I'm Jason Horton, host of Strange Year. Each episode, I break down the strange history and cultural happenings during that year, like 1977, the wow signal, 1963, three tramps theory, 1844, the Millerite movement, 1997, the Phoenix Lights, 1896, the shortest war, 2004, Benjamin Kyle, 1518, the dancing plague, 1985, the move bombing, 1972, remote viewing. So to get your weekly weird history fix, pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to Strange Year wherever you listen to podcasts. A nurse's worst nightmare. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. I just feel like killing those ladies. So for Thanksgiving, I went home back to Wisconsin and thinking about what we've done for my home state and the surrounding states. And I realized that we really didn't hit something that is probably one of the most horrifying stories that I have heard that for some reason we haven't gotten to. So today we're going to talk about 2319 East 100th Street. That is the address of the dorm for the nearby South Chicago Community Hospital. And it is also the site where Richard Speck brutally killed eight student nurses who were studying at the hospital in the early morning hours of July 14th, 1966. 1960s. I love, Ooh. I love some mid-60s. That's right. Especially in Chicago. Like, we, we're getting Chicago. It's working class. There's a lot of uh, people on the down and out, especially in this area specifically. It's still crime. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Running wild. Yeah. Absolutely. And especially for someone like Richard Speck, it's like everybody should have seen this coming, and which is also very infuriating. Nothing about him changes over the course of this, and nothing about him seems surprising. So he was born in Kirkwood, Illinois, local, the seventh of eight children of Benjamin Speck and Mary Speck. His oldest brother died at 23 in an auto accident in 1952. His father was a blue-collar guy, worked as a packer, a farmer, a logger. He was very close to his father, who died in 1947 from a heart attack at the age of 53. Speck was six. A few years later, Speck's religious, like very teetotaler mother fell in love with this horrible traveling insurance salesman from Texas. His name was Carl Lindbergh. And she met him on a train trip to Chicago. So he was a hard drinker. He had a 25-year criminal record that started with forgery and included several arrests for drunk driving. And he was the opposite of Speck's father, uh, who was sober, hardworking, kind of idealized really in Speck's mind when we talk about um, how he talked about his parents. So they married on May 10th, 1950. And Speck hated this guy. He was a drunk, he was absentee, he was a criminal, he psychologically abused him with threats, insults, um, violence. 
Speck, who was a poor student and needed glasses for reading but refused to wear them, struggled through his public school education in Dallas, where they moved from fourth through eighth grade, eventually repeating the eighth grade in part because he refused to speak in class because of a lifelong fear of people staring at him, which he got over. Spoiler alert. In 1957, Speck started ninth grade at a technical high school but dropped out just after his 16th birthday. Now, all of this, too. So he hated his stepfather, but he kind of started becoming him at this point. He started drinking alcohol at age 12. By age 15, he was getting drunk almost every day. His first arrest was in 1955 at age 13 for trespassing and was followed by dozens of other arrests for misdemeanors over the next eight years. So he dropped out of school. Speck got a gig working as a laborer for the 7-Up Bottling Company in Dallas for almost three years. In October 1961, he met 15-year-old Shirley Annette Malone at the Texas State Fair. She became pregnant after three weeks of dating him. They got married in 1962. Uh, He moved in with his mother. His stepfather finally separated, moved to California, so he was out of the picture, thank God. And Speck stopped using his name, Lindbergh, and went back to Speck at this point. So he got married to this 15-year-old girl who was newly pregnant with his child. Speck's daughter, Robbie Lynn, was born on July 5th, 1962. His wife didn't know that Speck was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace in Texas after a night of boozing. So he, his one daughter was born without him there. So he was already starting this really bad streak of crime, um, just being a shitty human being, and generally like continuing this just alcoholic, stupor that he would be in for almost the rest of his life. Even in prison, he kind of got to do whatever he wanted to do. In July 1963, Speck was caught after he forged and cashed a co-worker's $44 paycheck. He also robbed a grocery store, making away with cigarettes, beer, and $3 in cash. The 21-year-old Speck was convicted of forgery and burglary and sentenced to three years in prison. He was paroled after serving 16 months from 1963 to 1965 in the Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. One week after his parole, January 9th, 1965, Speck was wielding a 17-inch carving knife when he attacked a woman in the parking lot of her apartment building. He fled when the woman screamed. He returned to prison in Huntsville, but due to an error, he was released just six months later. This is also a very important indicator of the broken uh, penal system and him kind of being a white, generally handsomish man who did okay in front of most people and hid his pathology and knife play for some unfortunate people. After his release from prison, Speck worked for three months as a driver for the Patterson Meat Company and had six accidents with his truck before he was fired for failing to show up for work. In December 1965, on the recommendation of his mother, Speck, who was by then separated from his wife mercifully, moved in with a 29-year-old divorced woman, an ex-professional wrestler who was a bartender at his favorite bar, Ginny's Lounge, which still is in Chicago, You can go there. And needed someone to babysit her three children. This dude. In January 1966, Speck's wife filed for divorce. That same month, Speck stabbed a man in a knife fight at his favorite place, Ginny's Lounge. He was charged with aggravated assault, but a defensive attorney hired by his mother was able to get the charge reduced to disturbing the peace. All of this was for naught. Speck was then fined $10 and jailed for three days after he failed to pay the fine. This was the last time he would be in police custody in Dallas. On March 5th, 1966, he bought a 12-year-old car, robbed a grocery store, stole 70 cartons of, of cigarettes, 70 cartons, sold them out of the trunk of his car in the grocery store's parking lot, abandoned the car. He just needed the car as a storefront. 
The police traced the car to Speck and issued a warrant for his arrest for burglary on March 8th. An arrest would mean another prison term, so on March 9th, 1966, Speck's sister Carolyn drove him to the Dallas bus depot where he just went back to Chicago. He's still a young man at this point. He still has a lot of murdering to do. His family seems to be pretty culpable in a lot of this. Yeah, absolutely. Well. And and I get it too because the culture of being in kind of a you know, a lower class family too and having all these siblings, you're kind of in it together. I think you're protective of each other. But this goes far and beyond all of that, obviously. Speck stayed with his sister Martha and her family in Chicago for a few days and then returned to his boyhood hometown of Monmouth, Illinois, where he initially stayed with some old family friends. Speck's brother Howard was a carpenter in Monmouth and found a job for him sanding plasterboard for another carpenter. He became angry, Speck, when he learned his ex-wife had remarried two days after she was granted a divorce on March 16, 1966. He then moved into the Christie Hotel in downtown, which still exists. Uh, that was on March 25th and spent most of his time in taverns around there. At the end of March, while Speck and some acquaintances were on bar hopping trips to Gulfport, Illinois, they were detained overnight by police, and Speck reportedly threatened a man in a tavern restroom with his knife. Guy loves some knife play. On April 3rd, Mrs. Virgil Harris, a 65-year-old resident of Monmouth, returned home at 1 a.m. to find a burglar in her house brandishing a knife. He was a six-foot-tall white man who was very polite and spoke very softly with a southern drawl. The man blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, ransacked her house, and stole the two fifty she had earned babysitting that evening. A week later, Mary Kay Pierce, a 32-year-old barmaid who worked at her brother-in-law's tavern, Frank's Place, was last seen leaving the tavern at 12.45 a.m. on April 9th. She was reported missing on April 13th, and her body was found that day in an empty hog pen behind the tavern. She died from a blow to her abdomen, and that ruptured her liver. Also, hog pens behind taverns are a very specific thing happening in Monmouth, Illinois. On April 19, 1966, Speck returned to stay at his sister Martha's second-floor apartment on the northeast side of Chicago. Martha's husband, who served in the Navy, thought that like maybe we should take him to the U.S. Merchant Marine to get a job that will be a suitable and steady occupation for uh, Richard Speck. So on April 25th, he took him to the U.S. Coast Guard office to apply for a letter of authority to work as an apprentice seaman. The application required being fingerprinted, photographed, background check, and a doctor's exam, which he passed. He passed all of these things. And he went to join the 33-member crew of Inland Steel's uh, Clarence B. Randall, which was a on the lake on April 30th. He was in and out of Navy jobs, and on June 30th, Speck's brother-in-law, Gene, drove him to the National Maritime Union hiring hall one block east of five attached two-story brick townhouses three of which were occupied by South Chicago Community Hospital senior student nurses and Filipino Exchange registered nurses. Eight of the nurses lived in the easternmost townhouse, 2319 East 100th Street. On Friday, July 8th, 1966, Speck's brother-in-law drove him back to the NMU hiring hall to pick up his Siemens card and register for a, a ship. Speck lost out on that job to somebody else, and then Monday, July 11th, he had outstayed his welcome with his sister Martha and her family and went to a boarding house to stay. On Tuesday, July 12th, Speck returned to the NMU hiring hall. In mid-afternoon, he received an assignment on Sinclair Oil's tanker. But when he arrived at the ship, he found the spot had been taken, and he was driven back to the NMU hiring hall, which was then closed. He didn't have enough money for a rooming house. He had overstayed his welcome at his sister's place, so he slept in just an abandoned house not too far away. So we see the stepping down of things and the loss of hope. I mean, he's had... 270 chances. Let's yeah. give another 190 more, I <laughs> Why guess. Why not? Why not? Uh, let him keep his knife. Yeah. Can he keep his knife? Great. 
On Wednesday, July 13th, Speck picked up his bags and checked in at the NMU hiring hall yet again. He was very angry for being sent to a non-existent assignment before. Speck spent the rest of the day drinking in nearby taverns before he accosted 53-year-old fellow bar patron Ella May Hooper at Knife Point. Spencer took, Speck, sorry, took her to his room at the shipyard inn where he was staying, raped her, and stole her black $16 mail-order 22 caliber pistol. After dinner at the nearby Kay's Pilot House, he had a nice dinner. Speck returned to drink at the Shipyard Inn's tavern until 10.20 p.m., where he left dressed entirely in black, armed with a switchblade and LMA Hooper's handgun, and then walked to 2319 East 100th Street. So here we are, 11 p.m., July 13th, 1966. Speck breaks into this dorm. He has been drinking all day and, according to him, had shot up heroin for the first time in his life. He muscled past Filipino nursing student Corazon Amorao, who answered the door when he knocked. So let's talk about her a little bit, too, because she's a really important part of the story. She was born in the 1940s. We're not quite sure when. She is four foot ten. She grew up in the small province of Bantagas near Manila in the Philippines. It was a village of about 200 people and famous for the balisong, a folded knife whose blade can be hidden in its dual handles. So, again, kind of a, a different counterpoint uh, knife familiarity. Is it like a butterfly knife? Yeah, yeah. it is kind of like that. The culture of the island revolves around this knife, a lot of commerce with this knife, and it really shows her, not that she had one on her, but it shows her familiarity with, I think, uh, violence and also just being very resilient and resourceful. One of eight siblings, Amarau spoke Tagalog before beginning to learn English at school in first grade. Her educational path eventually led her to nursing after graduating from Far Eastern University in Manila. She worked for two years before applying for and starting a position at the American Hospital in 1966. She had been in the U.S. for only two months when Speck entered her dorm, spending her time studying, cooking Filipino food for her roommates, and hanging out with her new classmates. So Speck entered that night and, originally planning one of his routine burglaries, bound all of the women with kind of pieces of their clothing and different like shreds of fabric and just held them in one of the rooms for hours. And then one by one, he led Patricia Matusek, Nina Jo Shamal, Pamela Wilkening, Suzanne Ferris, Mary Ann Jordan, Merlita Garulo, and Valentina Pazan one by one into the bedroom, either sta- stabbing or strangling them in the bedroom and leaving them there. So can you imagine how horrifying you're waiting, you're bound, and this monster is just taking your friends one by one into a different room you probably are screaming, they're probably screaming, and they're silenced. And he comes back out, and he just, like, looks around for the next person that he's going to kill in the other room. Oof. Gloria Davy was his last victim, who was raped before she was strangled. So during all of this, Corazon Amorau, again, very new to America, she sees there's, you know, there's eight of them. She's the ninth one. She rolls under one of the dorm room beds while Speck is out of the room killing one of her friends. Speck probably lost count or might have, you know, just not figured that there was a ninth woman there that night. She stayed under the bed and her life was spared because he just lost track of her. So she stayed under there petrified until almost 6 a.m., barely breathing while Speck killed all of her friends and exited the building. Woo! Let's take a little break so you can process that. I'm very excited to talk about something that I think fits perfectly in the world of Ghost Town, and that is Shudder from AMC Networks. It is a premium streaming video service 
Super serving fans of all degrees with the best selection of horror and thrillers. Shudder's irrepressible and thriving community revels in all things provocative, evocative, and dangerous. There are new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. It is the Netflix for horror. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices. iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, Android devices. I like to watch it on Google Chromecast, but you can watch it however you want to. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $5.99 a month or $56.99 per year. I already have a couple of favorites. One that we share together. Oh, yes. And my wife is a huge Shudder fan. Like she, she curates for me like a lot of really great stuff. And one movie that we were just talking about, it's called Ms. 45, MS 45. And if you want early 80s revenge, so, so, so good. Another one we were talking about, they were both excited about might be my favorite Nicolas Cage movie. Mm -hmm. Mandy. Mandy. Oh my God. Uh, I did not know what I was getting into. I was recommended it. I saw it on Shudder, and I am a huge, huge fan. There's a ton of great exclusive titles, like Creepshow, which is, is a Shudder original, Tigers Are Not Afraid, Bezelbuff, Horror Noir, Lizzie, Mandy, which we've already discussed, and they got some great collections if mm-hmm. you curate a bunch of really great That's collections. Right. Vengeance is Hers, Dario Argento, horror comedies, classic slashers. Try Shudder free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com, that's S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com, and use promo code GHOSTTOWN. Try Shudder free for 30 days. Go to Shudder.com and use promo code GHOSTTOWN. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. We did a Patreon episode that we both found out we are obsessed with. Yeah. Yeah, so we did. You might want to go to patreon.com slash ghost town pod. Mm-hmm. Tons of bonus episodes. But that one we were really excited about. I get excited when mm-hmm. I know you know what it is. Yeah. And then you eyes light up. And you're like, I know this one. And you yeah. read a whole book on it. We're going to see what it is. Yeah. Go find out. It speaks to my memory, too, that I yeah. had read a lot on and then I t- totally forgot. It's really good. I also personally love the ones where there's a lot of theories around it that we can talk about. We can kind of volley around. And this is an amazing example of that. So great. And our Instagram is Ghost Town Pod. Somebody was a, a, a supporter of you. Big Sky, B-I-G-G-S-K-Y underscore. Uh-huh. Writes, Jesus Christ, please keep saying bonies. <laughs> I will till I die, Big Sky. And uh, Angry Clock says, uh, really, just really loves the podcast, and uh, she recommended a documentary on Netflix called The Sound of Insects. Ooh. Ooh yeah, it sounds pretty scary. That sounds so, amazing. Yeah, some nice messages. And if you, wherever you're listening to podcasts, please rate and review five stars. It, yeah. it really helps out. Sometimes we take a beating 
in the review section. Yeah, it's people don't understand us. Yeah. So like, well, you do. We know you do. <laughs> you do. You're special. Yeah. You get it and they don't. Yeah, that's right. It's us against them. Yeah. Send us money. <laughs> Venmo us money. We are no, your gods. Just, we are your gods. <laughs> just leave the review. It's fine. <laughs> Let's get back to Chicago, though. 1966. Speck has just murdered a bunch of people. Corazon Amaral has survived. Two days after the murders, Speck was identified by a drifter named Claude Lunsford. Speck, Lunsford, and another man had been drinking the evening of July 15th, right after, right? Um, actually, not even right after. It was done the early hours of July 14th, so it's like he murdered a bunch of people, went to the bar, and just like started drinking. They were drinking on the fire escape of a Chicago hotel, and this guy, Claude Lunsford, was like, oh, that's Richard Speck. I was just drinking with him, and they, he called the police a bunch of times, and they didn't believe him. They were like, nah, we don't believe you. And he's this like, guy with the rap sheet a mile long? Yeah. Not him. <laughs> no, it could be him. It could be him. But it was more speaks to Claude Lunsford and him being kind of like a down-and-out dude. Sure. Okay. Speck then attempted suicide for whatever reason. I'm not sure because he seems pretty infallible up to this point. And the Star Hotel desk clerk phoned the emergency center around midnight. He was taken to Cook County Hospital at 1230 a.m. on July 17th. At the hospital, Speck was recognized by a doctor, Dr. Leroy Smith, a 25-year-old surgical resident physician who read his born-to-raise-hell tattoo that he had gotten and saw it in the reports from the newspaper articles. So the, finally, you have a young hot doctor calls, and all the police listen. So he, they get there. Speck was arrested. He later claimed, Speck, that he had no recollection of the murders, but had confessed the crime to Dr. Leroy Smith at the Cook County Hospital. Smith did not testify because the confession was made while Speck was sedated. In a film inmates made at the Stateville Correctional Center in 1988, which there is ample footage of online, which is incredibly disturbing, Speck is sitting next to his prison lover at the time. He's almost totally naked. He's wearing women's underwear. And in this video, too, he is doing lots of drugs and like kind of making it like it gets very graphic and I haven't seen the whole thing, but you're like, Oh my God, like this guy is still this guy. It's very haunting in this film at the state Phil correctional center that was made in 1988 Speck recounted the brutal murders in detail. He again stated that he was high that night, but then he undercut the idea that the drugs were a mitigating factor because he said he could have done it sober. I believe it wholeheartedly that he would have done it sober, drunk, Hi, whatever. That was just in his DNA, I think, to destroy other human beings. His jury trial began April 3rd, 1967 in Peoria, Illinois. In court, Speck was positively identified by the sole surviving student nurse, Corazon. She asked if she could identify the killer of her fellow students, and she, trembling, rose from her seat, rose from the witness box, walked directly in front of Speck, and pointed her finger at him, nearly touching him, and screamed, this is the man. Pretty awesome. Lieutenant Emil Guise testified regarding the fingerprints that were matched too, so it was quite obviously him. On April 15th, after 49 minutes of deliberation, just 49 minutes, a little bit longer than a ghost on podcast, <laughs> the jury found Speck guilty and recommended the death penalty. On June 5th, Judge Herbert J. Passion sentenced him to die in the electric chair. Oddly enough, in December 1965 and March 1966, Nature and The Lancet published findings by British uh, cytogenicist Patricia Jacobs and colleagues of a chromosome survey of patients at Scotland's only, only security hospital for the developmentally disabled. Nine of the patients, ranging from 5'7 to 6'2 in height, were found to have an extra Y chromosome, the so-called XYY syndrome. Jacobs' hypothesis that the men with the XYY syndrome are more prone to aggressive and violent behavior than males with the normal XY chromosome. 
this later showed to be totally incorrect, but something about this theory really sticks with Speck. In August 1966, Eric Engel, a Swedish endocrinologist and geneticist at Vanderbilt University, wrote to Speck's attorney suggesting that Speck might have the XYY syndrome. An analysis of Speck's chromosomes showed that he was just a regular XY. A month later, a court-appointed panel of six physicians rejected Getty's insanity arguments and concluded that Speck was mentally competent to stand trial. But in 1968, biochemist Mary Teffler falsely recorded again that Speck maybe had an XYY karyotype from her studies, again, back in the 60s, that uh, and apparently acne scarring is another point of entryway into this weird genetic mutation. Uh, she described him as the archetypal XYY male. But he was not this. Something about this is perpetuated in his mythology and genotype, and it's something that is was not true, but made him special again as someone who's already repeatedly been giving more leniency it's like they found an excuse to, to make it more lenient towards him or to make him feel like a victim of his genetics. On June 28, 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld Speck's conviction but reversed his death sentence because more than 250 potential jurors were unconstitutionally excluded from his jury because of their conscientious or religious beliefs against capital punishment. The case was remanded back to the Illinois Supreme Court for resentencing. In 1972, U.S. Supreme Court declared the death penalty unconstitutional, so the Illinois Supreme Court's only option was to order Speck resentenced to prison by the original Cook County Court. Speck was resentenced from 400 years to 1,200 years in prison, eight consecutive sentences. He was denied parole in seven minutes at his first parole hearing on September 15, 1976, and at the six subsequent hearings in 1977, 78, 81, 84, 87, and 1990. While incarcerated at the Stateville Correctional Center, Speck was given the nickname The Birdman after the film Birdman of Alcatraz because he kept a pair of sparrows that had flown into his cell. He was described as a loner who kept a stamp collection and enjoyed listening to music. His contacts with the warden included requests for new shirts, a radio, and other mundane items. The warden merely described him as a big nothing doing crime. Speck was not a model prisoner. He was often caught with drugs or distilled moonshine, which he brewed himself. Punishment for these infractions never stopped him. How am I going to get in trouble? He would say, I'm here for 1,200 years. Speck hated reporters and granted only a couple press interviews. In 1978, he gave Bob Green of the Chicago Tribune an interview. During it, he publicly confessed to the murders for the first time and said he thought he would get, I mean, not technically because he was sedated and confessed to the doctor too, but publicly sober. And he said he thought he would get out of prison between now and the year 2000, at which time he hoped to run his own grocery store business. When Green asked him if he compared himself to celebrity killers like Don, John Dillinger, he replied, me, I'm not like Dillinger or anybody else. I'm freakish. Speck stated that at the time of the killings, he had no feelings, but then things had changed. I had no feelings at all that night. They said there was blood all over the place. I can't remember. It felt like nothing. I'm sorry as hell for those girls and for their families and me. If I had to do it all over again, it would be a simple house burglary. Speck's final thought for the American people was, just tell them to keep their hatred for me. I know it keeps up their morale, and I don't know what I'd do without it. It's like, he's like a martyr, you know? It's still like this, like, white male privilege, self-centered bullshit. Seems a little fetishizing. Yeah. Back, you know, we talk about that now. Mm Mm-hmm is a big dialogue of like how we you know, celebrate and fetishize yeah. serial killers. He gets pretty wrecked in prison. He doesn't look like he did when he was 25 years old. Um, but he is still like partying. 
Like this footage is like, he looks happy, healthy. He's doing drugs publicly in front of a camera. It's insane. In his book, Mindhunter, Inside the FBI's Elite Serial Crime Unit, John E. Douglas of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit refers to a telling prison incident Speck revealed to him in an interview. He found an injured sparrow that had flown in through one of the broken windows and nursed it back to health. When it was healthy enough to stand, he tied a string around its leg and had it perch on his shoulder. At one point, a guard told him pets were not allowed in prison. I can't have it, Speck challenged then walked over to a spinning fan and threw the small bird in. Horrified, the guard said, I thought you liked that bird. I did, Speck replied, but if I can't have it, no one can. In May 1966, Chicago television news anchor Bill Curtis received videotapes made at Stateville Correctional Center in 1988 from an anonymous attorney. These are the tapes that we've been talking about most of this episode. Showing them publicly for the first time before the Illinois State Legislature, Curtis pointed out the explicit scenes of sex, drug use, and money being passed around by prisoners who seemingly had no fear of being caught. In the center of it was Speck, performing oral sex on another inmate, uh, sharing a large quantity, like a mountain of cocaine with another inmate, parading in silk panties, sporting feminine-like breasts, allegedly grown using smuggled hormone treatments, and boasting, if they only knew how much fun I was having, they'd turn me loose. The Illinois State Legislature packed an auditorium to view the two-hour video, but stopped the screening when the tape showed Speck performing oral sex on another man. This video, portions of it, are still online, if you are so inclined. From behind the camera, a prisoner asked Speck if he had killed the nurses. Speck responded, sure I did. When asked why, Speck shrugged and jokingly said, it just wasn't their night. Asked how he felt about himself in the years since, he said, like I always felt, had no feeling. If you're asking me if I felt sorry, no. He also described in detail the experience of strangling someone. It's not like TV. It takes over three minutes and you have to have a lot of strength. Speck died of a heart attack on December 5th, 1991, on the eve of his 50th birthday. His sister was afraid that his grave would be desecrated, so he doesn't have a physical resting place. He was cremated and his ashes were scattered in a secret location outside of Chicago. Have you seen Mindhunter, the TV show? I have not. Okay, because so when I think it was, I, I can't keep it because season one and season two were kind of far apart, mm-hmm. but the name. I knew it from hearing about mm-hmm. you know, general serial killers, but it's referenced a lot in the, the show Mindhunter, which is okay. great. I mean, it's other levels. It. It's not just, you know, mm-hmm. obviously it's you know complex characters and all that kind of stuff. Richard Speck is uh, heavily in that. So if you haven't seen Mindhunter, it might mm. be a nice, interesting companion piece to this. Yeah. 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 Check it out. So we've heard about the good things about him. Let's hear some of the bad things. <laughs> Richard Speck was born in 19- <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Andy. And we're two ghouls on an eternal quest to explore all things scary. You can join us on our journey by listening to Shivers, a Necropoticon Network podcast. We'll learn about spooky, creepy, and terrifying history, review movies, and tell scary stories that might give you the the Shivers. You can find Shivers on Necropoticon.com or wherever delicious podcasts are sold. (laughs) 